Welcome to the Somerset Emotional Wellbeing Podcast. My name is Dr. Andrew Trasilla from Somerset Clinical Commissioning Group, and I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Peter Bagshaw, GP and CCG Lead for Mental Health. And co-host, and we're really pleased to welcome today uh, Dr. Lucy Pollock from Taunton and Somerset Hospital from Somerset Foundation Trust, talking about getting older. Welcome, Lucy. Hi. Hello, Andrew. And hello, Peter. And thank you so much for having me. It's a long time since we very first met when you were, I won't say you were junior in your career, but I think it was just before you were a consultant. So just tell us briefly about your career in Somerset, please. Um, okay. I think when I met you, I was probably very pregnant. I was pregnant most of the time when I first arrived in Somerset. I had nearly finished my training in London and uh, we had our first baby. And my husband and I got out a big map of uh, Britain and we each shaded in in two different colours where we'd like to live and there was no overlap at all and uh, so luckily <laughs> I don't think either of us wanted to live in Somerset but I am so glad we chose it um, and I moved down here as a senior registrar and then I um, had another baby and then I became a consultant and then I had another baby and I'm still a consultant uh, now 22 years later and it's proved a wonderful choice of a place to live, a superb hospital to work in, great patients, a fabulous teams to work with, and a, and a wonderful community to live in. That's great. And just on a personal note, I'm really pleased you live in a lovely village where I first spent the first 21 years of my life. Peter, over to you. I, I'm just curious to know, Lucy, following on from your uh, what took you into geriatricians, uh, geriatrics, is that when I was a medical student, it was it was seen as one of the specialties that there was a bit of a Cinderella service. And the more I've done general practice, the more admiration I've had for older people and the more I've enjoyed working with older people. I, I wonder what it was that drew you to geriatrics. Well, I think that's that's a good question. I'll be absolutely honest about it and say my dad was a geriatrician probably in the days before it was fashionable to be a geriatrician. And he was a, a very good physician. He actually died when I was pretty young. Um, but at the back of my mind, I suspect I always had that, both as a push and a pull, um, because sometimes you don't want to follow in a parent's footsteps. So I probably shied away from geriatric medicine as a young doctor. And then a very senior colleague suggested it to me. And he said, as, as you've hinted, he said, he hoped I wouldn't be offended, but he thought I should be a geriatrician. So there was a stigma attached to the specialty even then. Um, and the minute he said it, I knew that was what I was going to be. I really enjoy being with old people. I like human beings, basically. And to be a good geriatrician, you have to be very nosy. You need to know not just the medical side, which is often really interesting and complicated. So I enjoy the intellectual challenge of that. Um, but you also need to know where somebody sits in their setting with their family, with their society that they live in, what's important to them, what matters to them, um, because the questions that need answering often are not easily answered by an algorithm. So holistic medicine, which is what drew me into general practice, wanting to know about the person as a whole, not just a particular bit of them. Yeah, exactly that. And there's a lot of overlap. I think a, a lot of GPs and geriatricians uh, share a lot, in, a, a lot in common. Thank you. So what? So you've got 20 years of experience in Somerset, or more than 20 years of experience as a consultant, uh, and you've got a great department that you work with. You've got some fabulous people, uh, colleagues and others. What made you want to write a book? 
Ah, okay. I wanted to write a book for about the last 25 years, probably. Um, And the reason I I can almost remember that, well, I can remember the day that I thought that. I was standing outside the Whittington Hospital in North London, where I was a registrar. And that day I'd had a couple of really important conversations, one with a patient and one with family. And they were conversations about very delicate subjects, about whether to continue treatment or not. And I realised that those families and that patient had questions that they needed to ask that they felt they couldn't ask, that they didn't have the words to ask those questions or they didn't feel it was permissible to ask those questions. And I felt really strongly that the power was in the wrong place in those conversations. I knew the answers. I knew what they should be asking. And they hadn't felt able to. And once we'd got to the bottom of it, the, the conversations had gone a great deal better. But there were so many barriers for, the, for those people. And I felt that was wrong. And so for a long time, I have really felt that there needs to be some explanation of some of the challenges that people face in older age, as well as celebration. We've got to celebrate ageing. It's really important to recognise that. But also there are tricky situations that come up that people face with considerable courage and dignity, but they often feel quite alone or they feel they can't ask questions and there are things they can't talk about. And I wanted to break that barrier down. So that is why I've written it. And it feels as though a lot of barriers have been broken in our lifetime, a lot of stigmas taken away. And ageing and death seem to be the last stigmas. Is that what you're referring to when you say that the people didn't feel able to talk with you about it? Well, yes. I mean, in fact, there are quite a lot of things that that I cover in the book that people um, feel that it's difficult to talk about. So, I mean, there are things that families find difficult because they're kind of contentious, like should my mum go into a care home when she doesn't want to? And should my dad still be driving? And how do I stop him if he shouldn't be because he's never going to listen to me? That sort of thing. So there are things that are going to cause a family row. Um, Then there are things that are a bit frightening, like I've had a fall and I'm worried that I'm going to have another fall and am I going to lose my independence um, and, and, and have to move house? Um, so people don't like thinking about that kind of thing. But actually, if we do, we can do a lot about it. There are things that are frankly embarrassing. How do you talk to a doctor that looks like your grandson about your continence problems? You know, that, that, But yet, if we do talk about them, we can do something. And then there are the really big ones, which, you know, the, the big death and dying ones. Uh, so those are, um, they're all things that we can find difficult to talk about. And they're all things that are miles better if we do talk about them. Lucy, you mentioned consonants. It really is a big sort of shame thing that, that people talk about uh, or, or don't talk about. But you've got some great advice about lots of things in the book. Could you just give us a, a five-minute whistle-stop whistle tour on, on your approach to consonants issues in, in the older person? <laughs> okay, well, okay. Well, in the book, I start off by... by t- I mean, as, as anybody who's, who's read it will realise this book isn't a science book. It's a book of stories. And so it's based very much around patients. And sometimes around my own experience so I um, I start off by explaining the first piece of advice I was ever given about continents when I was a young doctor I was very pregnant I'd been to see this fantastic talk by Linda Cardozo who was a very well respected uh, professor of urogynecology she did amazing operations to repair people's pelvic floors and help them regain continents some of which are now con- quite controversial anyway I asked her I said to her at the end of the talk, I asked her, um, you know, I admired the operations, but I'd much rather not have one. How should I avoid uh, needing to see her? And she looked at my enormous bump and she looked at me and she said, never get pregnant. 
And then she said, and start your pelvic floor exercises when you're 14. And, um, and unfortunately, at that point, I thought, right, I'm doomed in that case. But actually, I've since learned um, from working with really good continence colleagues um, uh, who, who appear in the book, things like um, working out what the barriers are to continence. And sometimes it's something really simple. It's the distance between a patient and the loo. And, you know, if you're not very mobile and you're in pain from your arthritic hips and it takes you a while to get out of your low chair, those are all things that might mean that there isn't that much the matter with your bladder, but actually you're not going to make it to the loo on time. So it's sensible advice and then some conversation about um, the other things that we can do. So a lot of it is very practical. Thank you. And it's a really good section there. Lucy, you, you're quite right. It is a book of, of, of some fascinating stories uh, and your, your love of human beings and your interest in them comes through. Is there a favourite story you have amongst all of those? Because there are just some wonderful gems. Um, Do you know, that's a, that's a good question. One of the pleasures for me in, in writing this book was actually thinking about those stories because obviously they're not... They're very carefully anonymized and, and, and some of the patients, in fact, the patients in the book aren't real people. They are knitted together from lots of other little bits of other people. So I've sort of drawn threads from lots of different patients and families and, and woven them together into those individual stories. And, and I must say that process was really good fun for me. I mean, even dressing people, I would be, I would, I would describe a scene and then go out for a walk and realise that the daughter's wearing the wrong clothes. So I have to get back to my computer and rewrite her and, and dress her in something different. And um, the so so is there a favourite? I I don't think there is actually. I um I've had so many happy moments with patients and and sad ones and ones that have been precious for all sorts of reasons, secrets and um, things that have gone well and things that haven't gone well. I think it would be really difficult to pin down a favourite. And the nice thing is, you know, I know this sounds soppy, but actually my job is incredibly rewarding. And I go on meeting someone who makes me laugh or makes me think, you know, every day. I saw a really spectacular woman yesterday who told me something I'd never heard before. I can't tell you what it is now, but, you know, these things happen. That's one of the joys of a, of a medical career. There are so many interesting things. I, I'm, I'm, I'm only three quarters of the way through the book, the book about getting older, which I highly recommend by Dr. Lucy Pollock. But um, I love the bit about, uh, and of course, is a, is a companion of people, perhaps, but the 96-year-old gentleman who was with his daughter and, <laughs> uh, and was surviving. And what, what, what was it he said? You asked him what the secret to getting older? Oh, okay, yes. No, so that is, a very, that is a very lovely old patient. So he's an old farmer and he was looking, you know, he really was in very good shape apart from having arthritis absolutely everywhere. So I often ask, my, especially people in their 90s, I want to know what the secret is so I do usually ask people and this guy he he looked at me and he was he went very very twinkly and he said I'll tell you Dr Pollock I never touched a drink or a cigarette or a woman till I were 10. (laughs) (laughs) That completely stopped me so uh, yeah that's a good move. 
I would think you're virtually unfazable, Lucy, in your professional career, but that 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 one did um, did stop you, did it? I mean, that was just fantastic, and uh, and there are lots of little lines that people use. And the other thing that one does realise after a long career of doing this is that actually, the I mean, that one was unique, but there are other lines that people use that actually are are commonly said. And so phrases like "I know I shouldn't say it, but that's." There is so much guilt and shame about things that people need to say. Um, things like people will say, um, I mean, a, a really hard one is you wouldn't treat a dog like that. Uh, when people are talking about somebody who is suffering, about a family member who they absolutely love. And one of the things that I have always been keen to tackle is this paradox that you can love somebody and wish that they would die simultaneously, and that that is not a bad thing to do. That is not something that people should feel guilty about, and it's something we've got to be able to talk about. So, um, that and and people need to know that other people feel the same way. We need to open that conversation up. Can I take you back to something you started uh, right at the beginning? of something that certainly is a clinical problem I, I get presented with, somebody who is not fit to drive, and oh. they family know this, and the person won't accept it. What advice do you give there, taking us back to specifics? I must admit, I sometimes take a cowardly approach and say, hide the, the car keys or disconnect the uh, something electrical. Yeah, no, that's that's a very good a good point, Peter. And there are ethical arguments about whether it's legitimate to hide somebody's car keys and what responsibility does a family have if they know that somebody is driving unsafely. So the key messages there are that for certain conditions there are medical rules that apply, and we you know that it is the doctor's responsibility to tell somebody they can't drive anymore, and those are very clearly line, lined up like seizures and so on. But the much more difficult one is the person who's losing insight into their into their driving. Now, lots of older people are very good drivers and that's fine and actually most older people know when to take themselves off the road and they do that in, in a very dignified way but there are people who simply have no insight into their poor driving and their family is in despair about it so uh, and then the interesting thing there is it everybody always thinks it's the gp's responsibility to stop that person driving and of course it isn't and it puts that gp in a very awkward situation but in fact if there are serious concerns um in somebody, if they've got a diagnosis of dementia, you absolutely have to let the DBLA know. And if the patient won't let the DBLA know, then that is the, the family and the GP's responsibility to do that. If it's just this problem of insight and somebody's just becoming a very poor driver for multiple different reasons all adding up together, it is more difficult. But in the end, um, the key is that the, that you are allowed to let the DVLA know. And I wouldn't encourage people to shop their relative, but sometimes that is the right thing to do if you're genuinely concerned for the well-being of others and you've got somebody who's really very stubborn and is not listening. That's the right thing to do. So anyone is able to do that, are they? Are, are concerned yeah, yeah, well, uh, yes, you can go on the DVLA website. You do need to know their license number. So that tends, you know, it means the neighbour can't do it. And, you know, there are limits around it. But if you're a concerned family member, then you, you, you can do that. Um, 
uh, and and you can go to the police if you need to if somebody is really truly you know truly dangerous but it's often more subtle than that it's little bumps and bruises to the car and just a sort of niggling feeling that they're not as safe as they were and then actually the way forward is a truly open conversation with the family and you know People frame it nicely. It's so important for people's independence. And I think recognising you know, it's no good having a row and saying, mum, you're not fit to drive. I'm going to take your car keys away. If that person then has no other way of getting around and you've really taken their independence. So it's a matter of working together to work out how, what you're going to replace the car with, how you're going to do this in a gradual and gentle way. Um, so, so don't let it explode into a massive family row. And I suppose with my dementia hat on, I have to add that somebody with a diagnosis of dementia is often safe to drive. Uh, the incidents of accidents don't go up until two or three years after the uh, diagnosis. Absolutely, Peter, completely. And that's a common theme about dementia in general. Everybody, A lot of people who don't know about dementia have a picture of somebody with dementia as being somebody who's clearly deranged in a care home. And that is absolutely not the case. We all know there are people living with a very good quality of life, especially in the early stages of dementia, who go on functioning perfectly normally in familiar situations and are perfectly safe to drive. Really important message. And the DVLA can actually ask people to have a driving test. Yeah, I think that's got quite disrupted with COVID, I have to say. But yes, um, I hope those will be back in place again. And my under- I've met people who've been through that process and it's a very, very good assessment. And change, Thank you, Lucy, very much. Changing the topic slightly, we've a word that appears a few times in the book is activity and how beneficial it is. Tell, tell us about activity and what you mean. Because there, there is a word that we talk about sometimes on the podcast, exercise. And of course, exercise for some of us conjures up sort of pictures of lycra and not something yeah. that we do, we do personally. Um, yeah, absolutely. And actually talking about exercise can really pe- make people run a mile, or, you know, obviously not run a mile, um, do the opposite. Um, so really important that, that what we're talking about is physical activity and that that makes you feel great. So the one th- there are all sorts of things that make people live longer, like statins and aspirin and taking your blood pressure medicines and so on. But the only thing that has ever been shown to improve independent living in later life is being active, starting in middle age and moving onwards. And for most people, that doesn't mean much. So a lot of people think, well, I'm never going to run a marathon, so I might as well eat another bag of crisps. That is not the thing to think. What really makes a difference is simply standing up a bit more often. For a lot of people, do not stand up. I read the most spectacular statistic the other day about how many people spend more time on the loo each week than they do taking moderate amounts of activity, which is amazing. Twice as much time sitting on the loo as doing something moderately exerting. So let's get moving. Thank you very much. That's that's, that's such a key important message and you put it several times in the book. Looking at another topic, you know, we, we, we know about evidence-based medicine. We know that for our heart, we should be taking these four medications and for our lungs, we should be taking this and for our endocrine issues. Do you see people who are on, now this may sound pejorative, it's not meant to, who are on too many medications or who have, who have rather a lot that they seem to yes. have collected? Yes, all the time. And it is absolutely a recurrent theme of geriatric medicine. We see patients who who are admitted to hospital because of their medications. And we've got ourselves in a real muddle about this because medicine is very complicated. And we also want to do the right thing by our patients. So 
you know, there are guidelines for prescribing for your heart or your lung disease or whatever. But most of those guidelines only address one one illness at a time. And of course, we know that lots of older people have got five or six or seven different illnesses. And by the time you prescribe for each of those separately, without thinking about the interactions between those medicines, you are in real trouble. The other thing is, of course, that all the research has been done in people who are younger and fitter. And for many, many years, people over the age of 18 simply weren't allowed to be in the trials of medications. So we're extrapolating an evidence base that's been generated in young people and applying it to people who are 20 years older. And it really does make a difference. I know it sounds parad- it sounds like a terrible thing for a geriatrician to say, but I say to my juniors, could you be ageist? Because actually older people are different from younger people. Their bodies behave differently. They, they can benefit from medications, but they're also much more likely to get side effects. You have to be really careful. And I say to the juniors, in fact, I was teaching some this morning about heart failure and I showed them my Ming vase picture. You know, these patients are Ming vases. They are old and they are fragile and they are very easy to break. Just be careful with what you're doing. So absolutely. And I talk in the book about how difficult those decisions are for doctors, but also for patients and their families, especially if you're speaking on behalf of somebody who's got dementia. Should you stop those medicines or not? And then it's all about individual goals. And and some people love their tablets and they gobble them all down with their breakfast and they feel great and they feel well looked after and confident. And other people are just having a miserable time with medication. So there's a, there's a lot to be talked about there. So if pills and potions aren't the answer, and they often aren't in medicine generally, aren't they? Apart from exercise, what, what are the main tips or advice that you would give to people to, to grow old well, to keep healthy and to have as long and happy a life as possible? Do you know, that that's a super question, Peter. And I think it's so individual. And I've been given very individual, individual answers by patients. So the recurring themes from my patients are, don't worry, um, be contented, enjoy the small things, And I think that naturally happens as one gets older. We know that your interests change. You know, I don't want to go to a rave and drink Jaeger bombs all night. I really very much like my binoculars that I got for my 50th birthday, you know, and and one respects those changes in life. And as you get older, there are things that you find more interesting. And that's very, very important to celebrate those and not to worry about the fact that, you, you, you know, you may not want to go dancing. Um, equally, if you do want to go dancing, for goodness sake, find a dancing group and join it and, and, and get on with it. And don't let old age stop you doing things that you want to do. Um, alongside that, I think there is also having the confidence to make some secure plans for your future. So I, I think it is a lot of people worry about things that they could actually change. And so there's a niggle at the back of their head that they haven't um, you know, made a will or they haven't made sensible financial plans and so on. So actually, I think on some of those sort of milestone birthdays, it's, it's probably a good idea to say, right, I'm going to do that because then I don't have to wake up at three o'clock in the morning worrying about them. 
Um, then share your worries with your family. I think that's really important. Share your hopes and fears um, so that they know if you can't speak for yourself, they know what your, your hopes and fears are. That's really important. And then actually just enjoy the ride. It's amazing that we've added so many years to life expectancy. People have far longer in retirement than they used to. And that is fun time. You know, that's there to in, to, to be enjoyed and embraced. So it's, um, yeah, there's, there's, there's lots to look forward to. Your comment reminds me of a, a saying that was current a while ago about um, the secret to happiness being uh, know what we can change and changing it and, and know what we can't and accepting that. And I think you're saying pretty much the same thing, aren't you? I would say so. Um, equally, there's something to be said for uh, um, not accepting everything that happens in old age. So there are things that happen um, that are very common but aren't actually normal. So it's knowing that you should seek advice if you've had a fall, for example, or that if somebody has got significant memory problems, don't pretend that's not happening. Go and get some support and advice. So some of it is about um, accepting that things uh, are going to change but also being prepared to say hang on study on I'm going to go and see my fantastic GP about this and see if we can do anything about it. Lucy you've written a really wonderful book about demystifying the changes of aging and getting older it's called the book about getting older for people who don't want to talk about it and I'm just going to embarrass you by re reading out what Sandy Totsvig has written about it which is the most important book about the second half of your life you'll ever read I wish everyone in the UK could be under Dr Lucy's care but this is the next best thing and I have to say after our conversation today and you joining us on the podcast I really do think that here here Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Lucy. Thank you so much for having me. What a lovely treat to be here. You've been listening to the Somerset Emotional Wellbeing Podcast, hosted by Dr. Andrew Tresider and Dr. Peter Bagshaw. The show was created by David Seeley and was produced by Rob Hunt's Music on behalf of the Somerset Clinical Commissioning Group.